wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to this episode of Bleeding Daylight. Please take a few moments to search for Bleeding Daylight on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and let's connect. My guest today is usually on the other side of the conversation. He's normally the one asking the questions on his own podcast, but he has a story of his own that we'll hear in just a moment. Neil Matthews is a podcaster who has a genuine interest in people. He spends a lot of time trying to put himself in other people's shoes to discover who they are and what's behind their beliefs and the things they do. While most of the time he's listening to other people's stories, he has a story of his own that he uses to encourage others towards recovery. It's my real pleasure to welcome Neil to Bleeding Daylight. Thanks for your time today. Absolutely, man. Thank you. I'm just honoured to be here. I talk to a lot of people who've had a pretty tough start to life, but that's not really your story, is it? Not really. Not so much. I'm pretty fortunate. I was raised, I would say, in a Christian value home. Now, what that meant is is we went to church, but was my dad the spiritual leader of our home? No. Was our mom the spiritual mother of our home? In some respects, yes, because she was a child care development director, teacher, for preschool young children. But other than that, no, we didn't like actively have Bible studies or things like that. So I would say no to that. So what was life like growing up for you? What sort of a childhood did you have? Well, I mean, it wasn't terrible. Um, My dad was gone a lot. He uh, served in the United States Marine Corps and retired as a gunnery sergeant. And so he was gone quite a bit. And so when he was home, Even though he was physically there, mentally, emotionally, he was checked out. He was always wanting to be out with, you know, his Marines and his unit and his, you know, job and his duty. So it was really hard. My mom was there too, but, you know, she's working constantly trying to keep the house afloat while he's gone. You know, again, I think even when she was there, a lot of times emotionally, she was never really there either. And so, you know, I grew up with uh, an older brother. He's two years older than I am. We have never to this day really gotten along. And so I don't know why we just don't. And in that respect, it it was very, uh, I would say, intense in our friendship growing up. When I was in fifth grade, my cousins were sexually abused by their father and actually came to live with our family. And so our family went from four to then now six. That created a dynamic Because I went from, you know, kind of my brother and my mom telling me what to do and every now and then my dad to then these cousins and then now my mom and my brother. And, you know, I kind of got shoved down the totem pole even further. It just made for a very tough growing up because I never really felt like I had a place, never really felt like I had a voice. And maybe that's why (laughs) I'm doing what I'm doing now, not only with the podcast, but just uh, in life. There was something obviously in the church life that drew you in because, as you say, you were attending church, but it wasn't really a part of family life. But there was something bigger in there for you that drew you in. What do you think that was? Well, I think it was family and it was community. Most of my growing up years were spent in Southern California, Camp Pendleton, is a military base uh, there. And so I remember when my dad got out of the Marine Corps, retired, 
we moved to Oregon to get closer to his mother, my granny. And in that, you know, we're three hours from where she lived. So we settle in this little community of Medford, Rogue Valley area where I am currently. We start kind of church hopping. And I remember coming into Medford Neighborhood Church where we would end up kind of landing and and really establishing roots as a church. And I remember this church loving me in all of my flaws, loving me in all of my insecurities, loving me in all of my neediness, if you will, to really fill those holes and those void that I wasn't getting from my family. And the church really, in a sense, became my family. Older gentlemen became that grandfather figure. You know, younger men became brothers to me. A little bit older than me, you know, men became kind of father figures for me. So the church really became, in a sense, my family. And how old would you have been at this stage? So probably middle school into early high school. Okay. And and so you started going along and feeling that there was this family atmosphere and you wanted to be part of that. But when did this faith that they were modeling in front of you become your faith? So for me, um, high school was was really where it became my faith. I remember going to a church camp, a week-long church camp that our church was a part of, our denomination was a part of. And in that, I remember a speaker really speaking into my heart and really kind of breaking a lot of not only sin that was in my life, but really breaking apart a lot of my insecurities and who I was and really rewriting my identity truly in Christ. Because I remember coming back from that camp feeling like, you know what, God truly does love me and I need to now tell others about that. So there's this change of heart for you and you're there for more than just family now. You're, you're there for a spiritual family and for something that has occurred, this spiritual transaction that has happened within you. And I believe that led to you actually being actively involved within the church and involved in a number of ministries too. That little moment really became the catalyst that sparked in my heart to become more not only active in the church in any capacity I could get my hands on, but it also put me on a ministry track that one day would lead to a licensing and a credentialed uh, with the Christian Missionary Alliance as an associate pastor in that ministry where I, not only I was an associate, but I was over you know, all of family ministry. So from youth all the way down to children's ministry. And so little did I know that little church that loved me so much as a, as a kind of ornery adolescent young boy really helped me kind of grow into not only a man, but a spiritual man of God. You've got this opportunity to to minister to others, and it must have been incredibly fulfilling because you would have seen people that had gone through similar journeys to you and are looking for that belonging, and you're able to help them to discover that belonging for themselves. You know, it was. And as weird as this sounds, when I was in high school, I remember my senior year, we had to sit down and write, I think they call it a zap letter, which I don't even know what that is, but but that's what they called it. And so you wrote it like in September and then in June, they would give this letter back to you kind of like, you know, you could reminisce of, of what it was like when you first started your senior year. So any of it, my senior year, I remember declaring in this letter that I was going to be in broadcasting and I was going to go to ESPN. And I had all these aspirations of being the next Dan Patrick on ESPN. And then in April of my senior year, something dramatic happened, which didn't even affect me personally, but it happened way away from me in Colorado, Littleton. Some, some people may know the Columbine shooting that took place. Well, that happened my senior year. 
For whatever reason, that story rippled all the way to Oregon from Colorado. And I remember sitting in a high school classroom hearing about the tragedy that took place at Columbine and thinking to myself in that moment, where's their youth leader? Where's their spiritual mentor? And it was in that moment when I found out about what had happened that I committed my life to say, okay, God, what do you want from me? All this broadcasting stuff, ESPN, that's me. That's me trying to chase what I want. What do you want? And really submitting to that. And in that led to me becoming, as I mentioned, you know, a youth pastor and an associate. And, and that's why I still feel compelled to this day to encourage, equip, and challenge youth of this day. And along the way, you met your wife. Tell me a bit about that story. Yeah, so that's a fun one. Um, my wife and I actually met our freshman year of high school, and she would declare, even if she was on air right now, uh, she would declare that she did not like me and maybe even hated me in some respects. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> she still can't to this day tell me. But through a series of events, we kind of stayed through a lot of the same channels of, of friends, uh, through the next couple of years. But it wasn't until our junior year of high school that we ended up beginning to go out. I, I skipped a class to ask her out. But prior to that, we were at a, a leadership retreat that our, tr our school was putting on. And in that, there's this crazy series of events where there's a snowball fight that takes place. And this is a true story. People are going to think I'm making this up, but I promise you I'm not. So here's the story. So there's the snowball fight, guys against girls. And I throw a snowball and it hits my now wife in the chest and it drops her to the ground. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I've killed this. I've killed this, this lady, this woman, this, you know, young girl that I'm kind of, kind of fond of. Right. And so I go rushing over, pick her up out of the snow. The snow starts to fall from the sky. This monumental moment. I look her in the eyes and I'm like, are you okay? And I'm thinking to myself, I could get lost in these eyes forever. And the next thing I know, snow is in my face. I'm pushed to the ground and she runs away. And I did have a thought. She denies this, but I did have a thought. I'm going to marry that girl one day. She denies that, of course. <laughs> there are people that have some amazing stories of, of meeting and how they got together. And that's, that's got to go down as one of the best. So there you are. You're, you're married. You're working in ministry. but during this time, I believe there's a, a bit of a dark secret. Tell me about that secret and, and how it came out. Yeah, that secret is is a tough secret. And, and to be honest with you, it's a secret that for a lot of years I didn't want to talk about, obviously, because that's the thing of a secret, right? We want to keep it a secret. And, and I won't make it a we, I'll make it a me. I wanted to keep it a secret. And that secret was when I was in uh, around eighth grade, I had discovered my brother had, I believe even to maybe this day, uh, a pornographic addiction. And in that, I found his peripheral stash, if you will, and began to indulge in that viewing and you know, indulging. And what that led to is just, again, this pattern of addiction that was really hard to break. And, you know, uh, being now out of that and, and in recovery in a lot of respects in that respect, I remember even dating, you know, my now wife and telling her, you know, and, and her finding things and her finding things out and how hurt she was. 
And, you know, of course, me making promises multiple times. Oh, I'm never going to do that again. I promise. It's not you. It has nothing to do with you. It's me. Even to the point of where, you know, we were married and I wasn't on staff at a church yet. I was on track to be. And I confessed to her, you know, that I that I'd done this again and she had found some stuff and we'd worked it out and, you know, I promised again. And, and then I become on staff at a church and fell back into that trap again. And she found it again and she left. She left for the night. She took our daughter at the time, was was very young. And I remember going to bed that night after my wife had left, thinking to myself, you know, God, if you wanted to take my life right now, I'd be okay. I would be okay if you took my life right now. I don't deserve to live. I've hurt this woman so many times. I don't deserve her and I don't deserve my daughter and I really don't even deserve you. So, you know, if I wake up tomorrow, I guess I'll consider it a blessing. But I went to bed thinking I wasn't going to wake up. Now, I didn't do anything. I didn't take any medication or anything like that. But I really prayed this prayer just like I was at my, I was at my, my weakest point. And I woke up, obviously, the next morning. And my wife came back and we talked very briefly. And I just said, listen, I, I commit to you not that I'm going to change, but I'm going to get help. And she said, Okay. And I said, and if you want to go, I completely understand. And I remember her saying, if I wanted to go, I would not have come back. And I thought, okay, there's a spark there. There's a hope. I can, I can rebuild this. I can't, but I know others can help me rebuild this. And so that began the process of trying to not only rebuild my marriage, but really rebuild you know, who I was as a person again, rewriting that story of, of truly who my identity in Christ truly was. Not to make a long story even longer, but I ended up losing my position at the church. I did resign from my position and I began a year of, of recovery of not only going to intense counseling, but really getting to the root of the issue of why I struggled and where that came from and really working that out through a professional counselor and through a ministry called Pure Desire. I read a book by Ted Roberts that really radically changed my life forever. And through that process, I began to heal and understand where I was coming from, where that addiction was was kind of surfacing and really uprooting that and really getting that out of my life. Where did that go for you? Where was that hurt? Uh, were they able to to narrow that down and bring that back to to that emptiness that you felt as a child that that didn't fit in? Or was there something more within your childhood or young years that they were able to tie it back to? Well, a lot of pain. All right. A lot of pain. And I know that's really broad, but a lot of pain and anger came from the fact that I didn't feel enough, that I truly looked for other avenues to fill that void of not feeling enough. I remember my counselor saying to me, listen, you don't need to go to church anymore. Now, now mind you, this is a Christian counselor, right? Years of training. I think he even has degrees from Dallas Theological Seminary. So, I mean, pretty prestigious school. And I remember him saying to me, you don't need to go to church anymore. In fact, you don't even need God anymore. And I was blown away. I'm like, where are you going with this, bud? <laughs> and he said, listen to me. He said, you're your own judge, jury, and executioner. You don't need God anymore. You don't have to worship God anymore. You worship yourself enough. And that broke me because I thought that's, what it, that's the root issue. I've been worshiping myself for so long because nobody else would. 
So I began to worship myself. And he said, you don't, you know, again, you don't need to be your own judge. And I'm like, you're right. Cause I judge myself so much more harshly than anyone else can. And I then execute myself. I make myself feel terrible about myself and that negative self-talk and all of that compounds to then going to act out into, you know, inappropriate ways, trying to dull that pain. I found out that when I couldn't act out in my addiction um, of through pornography, I found out that if I was ever on a stage, and I'm talking a physical stage like preaching or being in front of people or things like that, that that soon became the drug. That became the kind of scratch that out. That's not working. Let's try this. That's going to work for a while. People's self-approval became very motivating for me you know, because I thought, oh, they like me, you know, and maybe that's why I got into sales uh, professionally is because in sales, you have to get people to like you in order to buy from you. And so from that respect, for most of my life, when I couldn't act out in that, I would go to my job and get fulfillment there. And then I started to realize again, I can't get the fulfillment anywhere. I'm just chasing the horizon. I'm never going to catch it, right? I have to truly get it in Christ where it needs to be and only be. How do you turn something like that around when you want to go back to to ministering, uh, when you want to go back to that sales job and to to do what you do there without it coming with all that extra baggage? How do you just do that without it being that other form of addiction? Because I make it about the other person. That's what I've discovered. And I think that's even really where I get fulfillment out of the show is the idea that it's not about me in this moment. When I'm with that person, that sales perspective, sales client, it's not about me in that moment. How can I meet their needs? I set my needs aside and I really go to minister to them. And I've discovered in that they get fulfillment and I'm like, oh, there's so much of a greater joy when I get to help rather than them bringing me the source of the encouragement, if that makes sense. You've wanted to turn this whole thing around from being this secret that you kept stuffed down and the shame and the guilt that goes with that. And now you're trying to help other men to face their own recovery. How are you doing that? Well, recently, our church has started through Pure Desires Ministry. We've started actually a sexual purity group, and now we're transitioning into their second series, which is called Seven Pillars. And in that, I'm able to help guys kind of walk through that darkness that they've been a part of. I'm helping provide the light through Christ, through counseling, through my own experience, through my own testimony, through my own stories to say, listen, there is a better way and there truly can be freedom on the other side of this if you walk this out. Do you find that a lot of the men who are trapped in this sort of addiction or any kind of addiction really feel quite surprised when they realize that other guys have been going through this as well and that there is hope beyond that, that they felt up to this point that hey, there's there's only a few of us and, and I'm alone. Yeah, it's always mind-boggling to me when I see the light come on that there are other guys that have dealt with this. I remember in, in one of our groups, um, we had a gentleman that said, I never even knew, looking at me. Like, I never even knew you dealt with that. I'm like, how did you not think I, I haven't dealt with this? He's like, I don't know. You just seem like you have your life together. I'm like, well, that's me having you fooled. <laughs> I said, because I don't. 
And I think that's the the scary part, but also the freeing part, right? Is when you really sit down and you really dig into it, you're like, wow, I'm not alone in this, that everyone on some level is just like me. They've battled through this and they've battled through that. And to me, I think there's such a a, a bond that then takes place because you can go arm in arm and say, listen, we're in this together. You're not walking this alone. And I think that's the danger, right? Is Satan wants to keep me feeling like I'm alone. He wants to keep me reminding myself, no, you're not who Christ says you are. You're actually this. And I'm like, no, no, no. I know what my name is. I know where it's written. I know who has the end of my story. You no longer have power here. How long did it take for you to rebuild trust with your wife? You you mentioned that she was incredibly gracious and in saying, no, look, I, I'm sticking with you. But obviously, there's still that issue of trust that needs to be built back because there's been times before when you've made promises and haven't followed through. This time when you were serious about this addiction and overcoming it, how long did it take for that trust to rebuild with her? That's a great question. For me, I know it wasn't overnight. I know it wasn't even a couple of months. I think it takes years and years and years. And I think even still, for me, every day is a day to build trust with her. Every day is a day to demonstrate to her that I truly love her, that my eyes and my energy and my efforts and my heart is for her and not for anyone else. And so I think every day is a day to build trust. So as far as how long it took, I know it took some time, but I don't have like a, well, it took six months. It took a year. It took, you know, I don't have that time frame. To me, it's a daily thing to commit to say, no, my eyes are for you. My sexuality is for you. I want to take a different turn now and, and start to talk a little about your podcast, Other People's Shoes. Tell me how that came about. What's the emphasis behind that podcast? Well, again, I would have to give credit to my wife because we had a change in leadership at our church that we're currently going to involving our youth ministry. And I was obviously actively involved in, in the youth ministry. And so leadership went in a different direction. And I wasn't necessarily a fan of the direction that they went. And so I didn't have anything to do. And my wife said, you need a hobby. And I was like, I have a hobby. I love running. I love getting, you know being active. She goes, no, you need a verbal outlet. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. You and I have that. And she goes, no, no, no. We need something outside of you and I. I said, okay, what do you have in mind? She goes, well, I think you should start a podcast. And I was like, first off, what is a podcast? Like, I didn't even know what one was. And she said, well, you, you know, go figure that out. And I said, well, I don't even know how you'd start one. Like, do you get into iTunes? Do you put it on Spotify? Like, I don't even know. Like, what mics do you use? What recording stuff do you use? I have no idea. She said, well, again, you're really smart. Go figure it out. And at the time, I remember trying to play the guitar, which I'm not a musician, can't sing to save my life. But for whatever reason, I wanted to start learning how to play the guitar. And it wasn't going well. For those who've started the guitar, you know the pain on that too, right? Your fingers are hurt, everything else, right? And in that, I ended up meeting a guy from church and I said, listen, um, you want to play the guitar? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I'll sell you mine. And I used that money to actually go buy my first podcasting equipment, learn how to use the mic. And I've always been kind of a, a gifted speaker in some respects, communicator. And so I knew I could speak. 
I just didn't know how I was going to book people, anything like that. So it has just been a learning process over the last three years of, of not only starting the show, but continuing to produce the show. So yeah, she gets credit for that as well. <laughs> and you've had some incredible episodes over those last few years. You've talked to people from so many different walks of life. Tell me about some of the, the stories that really stand out for you, some of those episodes where you just come away thinking, wow, that was a great opportunity to get insights from that person. Along the way, we've had roughly about 150 plus episodes. And so it's really hard to narrow down a few, but I will say, selfishly, one of my favorites, I have an interview coming up on uh, my 150th episode with Todd Marinovich. Todd Marinovich has an amazing story about how he was groomed from his childhood growing up to be an NFL quarterback and his journey along the way. Well, along the way, he discovered drugs at USC where he was attending college where he was a very prominent uh, USC quarterback. And through that journey, he ended up leaving school because of drugs and then got drafted by the Raiders and then had a journey through drugs in the NFL and ended up losing his NFL job through drugs. And so through this series of crazy events, I ended up getting an interview with him. And it's, it's just a really great conversation. So I'm really excited about that one, selfishly, because I'm an NFL guy and really love talking to NFL people. So we had a lady that had an OCD. I've never talked with anyone from OCD. That was a fun conversation. We had a lady that started the gay and lesbian pride parade in our community. Not a fan of that per se, that movement, but just that was a whole different perspective than I've ever encountered. That was an interesting conversation. Again, another one selfishly, I interviewed my dad, which was a really hard episode because I asked him the question, if you had to do it all over again, would you change anything in your life? You know, Knowing what the Marine Corps did to our family, would you change anything? And he didn't hesitate, Rodney. He didn't pause. There's no dramatic, like, you know, I didn't take anything out. He literally said no. And I said, do you want to rethink anything? Do you want, you know, I mean, come on, you know, and trying to kind of get him to rethink something, reconsider the no. And he immediately said, no, there's nothing I would change. And I remember in that moment as an interviewer, right? I'm trying to be the interviewer, not the son in that moment. Sorry. And I just think to myself, dad, really? You wouldn't change anything knowing how much hurt our family walked through, knowing how much pain you put us through. You wouldn't take anything of that away. You wouldn't come back and tell us that you loved us more. You wouldn't come back and tell us that you missed us when you were gone. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say anything like that. Nothing. Sorry. Must have been an incredibly hard time to be able to continue on and try to put yourself in the frame of the interviewer while you're, you're hearing this. That has personally affected your life and continues to affect your life. That was a tough one. I mean, there have been many amazing episodes. I mean, there's, there's so many to, to choose from. I, I, I can't pick one. What I love about it is that you're willing to listen to people from from a range of points of view, and you're not just listening for someone to echo back your own thoughts, but you're trying to get behind that. Are there times that you've listened to someone from another point of view and you've thought, you know what, never thought of it that way, and it's changed your thinking on some issues? Yes, all the time. All the time. Probably every episode. 
without a fail, without a doubt. You know, that's the joy of, and I know you experience this too, I think on some level, that's the joy of what I, what we get to do. I'll put a we on that, you and I, is that truly it is just getting to know someone. And to me, I'm a geek about geography. Like I have a map in the studio of every place we've been, every city that we've been, mainly the United States, but we do have some some international flair. You're you're coming on the show and and we're excited about that. Like I I put a pin next to every place we've been. And it was at first just to track where we'd been, but now I use it as a prayer chart. Now I look at the map and I can look at Texas and I can look at Florida and I can look at North Carolina and I can look across the great United States and I can look at pin marks and the pin used to represent just the person and it still does. And now I look at the pin and I, and I maybe say a prayer for that person. You know, I pray, I say a prayer for some Muslim ladies we had on. I don't know anything about Muslims. I don't know anything about their, their faith. I, I, I know a little bit, but not enough. You know, they said, whatever you want to ask, nothing's off the table. You know, and that to me was so impactful. There's, I guess, three elements that you really need for a podcast. You certainly need someone presenting. If you're doing an interview-style podcast, you need guests, and you've had plenty of great guests, but you also need listeners. What's the feedback been like from those people that listen in to your show? Yeah, the feedback has been great. I won't say it's every single episode. But every now and then I'll get a note from somebody or I'll get a message from somebody saying, hey, that really ministered to me or hey, that really made an impact. But for me, the feedback has been, wow, this has been ministering to me. But one story in particular I'll share, um, I was going to a race, a running race, because as I mentioned, I'm a runner at heart. And we had just done an interview with a mom that had lost her daughter to suicide. And I remember going to the race and going up this staircase because it was at one of our country clubs that we have in the in the area. And these two ladies were in front of me. And as they're walking up, I'm kind of listening to their conversation. And one lady says, oh my gosh, can you believe he asked that? And I'm thinking, oh, now you have me intrigued, like all ears in, right? And she goes, and the other lady responds, I know. I've been wanting to ask her that for years. And they're conversing back and forth about something. And as the conversation goes on, again, I'm eavesdropping. One of them says, I know, I'm going to share that episode with somebody. I'm like, episode? What, what are they talking about? And finally, they said, that podcast was just so amazing. I just love the host's heart, how gentle he was with her and, and everything. I'm like, wow, who is this guy? And I realized they're talking about my episode. And so I, again, I, now I'm like kind of with some pride, right? You know, like it's your child that has done well in an event. You're like, Wow. My little episode did that well for these ladies. And so anyway, I interrupt their conversation and I say, hey, do, do you mind if I ask, you know, what are you guys talking about? Sounds interesting. Sorry, I was eavesdropping. And they accepted my forgiveness and, you know, welcomed me into their conversation. And one of the ladies said, yeah, can you believe that host? And I said, yeah, tell me more about this episode. How did it speak to you? And they're sharing more like, hey, we're part of the family. Like these are things we've always wanted to ask her, but never had the courage to. And just how gentle, you know, everything that they're saying. And I'm like, man, this is awesome. And one of the ladies was like, wait, say something to us. And I said, what, what do you want me to say? And they go, you're the guy. And I was like, what do you mean I'm the guy? And they're like, you're the host. You're the one that did the interview with Susan. And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, oh my gosh. And next thing I know, they're both hugging me. And I'm like, okay, we're hugging now. I don't know these ladies, never met them in my life. 
And they said, what you did was so amazing for our family. We will never forget what you did for us. And I was like, okay, I don't care if I ever get another compliment again. That was worth it. That was so worth it. I'm just wondering, in in a world that seems increasingly divided, where we can't seem to have a nuanced conversation, where we join onto one tribe or another and we're just diametrically opposed to, to each other's viewpoint, how important is it, do you believe, to be able to hear the other perspective in, in the way that you're able to share so many different viewpoints on your podcast? Well, I say quite often, a different perspective on life. That if you really walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. When I first started saying it, I thought, man, that's really easy to say, but it's really hard to do. And I, I think for me personally, and I hope others will join me in this, you really have to have that different perspective. Now, hear me on this. Our perspective may be different. Our perspective, that other person's perspective in your mind might be 100% wrong. Okay, cool. But can you at least have a conversation? Can you at least say, okay, let's have a civilized conversation? I don't ever tell people when they come on that they're wrong, that their belief is wrong, that their you know, thought process is wrong. That's not what it's about for me. What it's about for me is to hear them out, to have that conversational dialogue that can truly change lives. Because again, I believe everyone's story has value and needs to be valued if that makes sense. It really does. And I couldn't let you go without asking you, of course, the most important question, because one question that you certainly ask of everyone on the show is about their favorite shoes. <laughs> Tell me about asking that question and some of the responses that you've had. So it started out as a joke on my first episode because I was trying to think, well, you know, it's audio, right? So how do you visually get some, or how do you audibly get somebody bought into what you're talking about, right? Because they can't see the person. And so I remember thinking to myself, well, how are we going to know this person? What are we going to know? And I thought, well, it's called other people's shoes. So we're in their shoes. So why not ask them what shoes they're in? And I think, it, again, it started out as a little bit of a joke for me. And now it's become obviously a staple. It is the first question we lead off with every episode with. At least we try to. I think there's one or two that we maybe miss, but that's just because I probably got nervous or whatever. But but yeah, I think that's where it started from is just asking that question to really try to try to get into those shoes. And it's just a fun little icebreaker really to to kind of set the tone maybe for the episode. Neil, it really has been a delight to talk to you, to hear some of your story, but also to hear your perspective on other people's stories as you talk through what goes on on your podcast. So I just want to say thank you for your time on Bleeding Daylight. It really has been a pleasure. Well, Rodney, thank you so much. I really love the work that you're doing. And to me, you know, it, it is so great to meet somebody, you know, whether it be virtually or one maybe one day in person that really shares a lot of the same thoughts and processes and really trying to amplify those voices. So to me, it's just an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.